hit me. From Studio A in Arcata, behind a redwood curtain, it's time for... Suckatash. Suckatash Chats, the original comedy soundcast soundcast featuring interviews from comedy... Soundcasts. Comedians, comedians, soundcasters, and other showbiz folk. And here's your host from up the coast, practically unknown outside of comedy soundcast soundcasting, Tyson Felician Noviaron, estas me, Tyson Saner, your host for this special first Succotash, the Comedy Soundcast Soundcast of the Year edition of Succotash, the Comedy Soundcast Soundcast. And let's not kid ourselves, this chats episode very likely could not have come at a more appropriate time. Your friends in podcasting, Phil Larness and Dean Hagland of Chill Pack Hollywood Hour, agreed to sit down with me earlier this week to discuss their brilliant independent film, the dark comedy, The Lady Killers. If you are an adult and have not seen this film yet, I believe that you should. It explores the theme of toxic masculinity and its symptoms of sexual conquest as friendly competition, as well as the plausible consequences involved when it all stops being fun and starts being deadly. Just for clarification, this film is not a remake of the 1955 film The Lady Killers, where lady and killers are combined into one word for a total of two words in the title. The actual remake in question was released in 2004 and directed by Ethan and Joel Cohen. This, more recent film, was released in 2017, and its title is comprised of three words. If you Google it as three words, those words being The, Lady, and Killers, Google will ask you if you meant to search for those other films. Even if you put the three-word search, The Lady Killers, in quotes, no, Google, I am not looking for those other films, and I did mean to look for this one. Perhaps if this film began trending, Google might recognize it better. But I don't claim to know how Google does what it does. Indeed, the best solution is to bypass Google completely and go to the web address, theladykillersmovie.com, because that is its website. And that is T-H-E-L-A-D-Y-K-I-L-L-E-R-S-M-O-V-I-E dot com. In addition to our interview with your Chillback Hollywood Hour, I've got a single burst of Durst from raging moderate Will Durst and selected reading from TrumpPoetry.com. So let's get started. First up, our single burst of Durst from raging moderate Will Durst. This one is from Friday, December 28th of 2018, and it's called Will Durst's 2018 Xmas Gift Wish List, where all the S's in this title are styled as dollar signs in which our intrepid correspondent writes the wrongs of the season. Hey guys, Will Durst here to thank the baby Jesus that all those annoying ads for the Christmas sales have blessedly disappeared to be replaced by all those annoying ads for the after Christmas sales. It's that time of year when the holiday music is stuffed back into the vault of mistletoe and we have to wait ten whole months to hear the same 30 songs sung by the same 30 people. And, at the end of the holiday season, it is our self-imposed task here at Dursko to right the many wrongs perpetrated by the corpulent, bearded, cisgender male in the scarlet suit. Apparently, Santa's bag had some holes in it, and a few folks didn't find the presents they truly deserved under their tree. A little something we would like to rectify here with Will Durst's 2018 Christmas Gift Wish List. 
For Kellyanne Conway, a red, white, and blue muzzle. For General James Mattis, an all-expenses-paid vacation to the relative calm of Damascus, Syria. For Nancy Pelosi, a 55-gallon drum of patience. For Kamala Harris, some of Hillary Clinton's excess testosterone. For Donald Trump, one of those Chinese finger traps for his thumbs. For Mike Pence, a strobe light to give the appearance of movement at press conferences. For Elon Musk, a lifetime supply of whatever medicine they give the kids with attention deficit disorder. For Rudy Giuliani, mint-flavored shoelaces for whenever he puts his foot in his mouth. For Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, a wall to control our immigration. For Ruth Bader Ginsburg, two spools of really, really strong bubble wrap. And finally, for the American people, total gridlock for the 116th Congress. No harm, no foul. For Succotash, the comedy soundcast, soundcast, I'm Will Durst. You can go to willdurst.com for the Will Durst Journal, which is comedy for people who read or know someone who does. And you can reach Will Durst on Twitter at W-I-L-L-D-U-R-S-T. Phil Ernest, Dean Hanglin, welcome to Succotash. Hey! It's going to be the Succotash. And congratulations I... on taking over for Mark. Oh, thank you so much. That was that was Dean Hagland. I'm Phil Lernis, and I feel with Tyson, it's both uh, a return to Succotash and my first time ever on Succotash. <laughs> yes. Inter- interesting. I'm going to have to parse that one later as I edit and figure out exactly what was meant by that. <laughs> uh, but I appreciate it. So, how are you both this morning? Slash afternoon. Wow. Shall I start? I am freezing. It is picture perfect here in Detroit. The sun is out. There is what looks to be two to four inches of snow on the ground. It is as if I'm living in a Christmas card that I didn't send this year. Nice. He stole what I was going to (laughs) say. There's not four inches of snow in Los Angeles. Oh, I don't know. How would I know? It's it's. It's not even nine o'clock in the morning yet here, Dean. None of it's the sun isn't up. None of us are outside. It's uh, uh, it's the middle. It's the middle of the night here at eight forty <laughs> in the morning. Oh boy! I'm reminded of uh, L.A. story with Steve Martin uh, and his job as a weatherman, where it's just nice every day, except for the one day he decides to wing it and throw magnets at the board and see what sticks. And <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's uh, but oh, yeah. No, he- records doesn't he pre-record his uh his I believe, weather forecast? i believe he does i believe he does he's like hey look over here sam we got the nice weather here and he's just throwing the little pucks onto the board and they're sticking this is this is the second time in a matter of weeks that la story has come up in conversation no kidding uh which which i would have thought would have delighted me but it just kind of disturbs me oh no said. <laughs> well i don't know i mean for years, I always would quote that movie, and no one would know. And then all of a sudden, I was at a party recently where someone quoted it back to me, and I was flabbergasted. Anyway, I think clearly a theme has emerged uh, for this episode of Suckadash. It's three guys discussing L.A. story. Yay! Right. <laughs> Wait, no, is that really what we're doing? <laughs> I mean, I you know, it's one of those uh, when I... When no. I go ahead. Well, Tyson saw our movie, The Lady Killers, as I understand it. That is true. I did. I've seen it twice now. 
That's what that's, more than I have. <laughs> I was going to say that. I was going to say that. Uh, it, it, it's true, though. Dean has only seen it once. So, uh, so Tyson, tell him what he's missing. Yes. Wow. Okay. So, you know, it's interesting. The last, uh, I don't know, uh, year of, of my life um, interacting with uh, the podcast that I do interact with, um, I've heard a conversation about something called toxic masculinity for a while. Even mm-hmm. even wanting to do um, a podcast specifically on topics such as that, since the ones that I currently do are generally more comedy focused, and I do try to keep politics off of antisocial show, but they do invariably come up anyway. Um, right. But I do think that things like toxic masculinity and and uh, probably heard this term rape culture um, right. are, are things that are really important. And I know that this, my understanding rather, is that this uh, film, this set wasn't made recently however i mean it recently certainly within you know in the general scheme of things but this was was not was it not planned and executed well before hashtag me too or anything like that absolutely how when well, did we start this well i don't know it wasn't completed well before i think that's Maybe. not quite true it, it took hmm. us a long time to make the film especially uh, editing and finishing the movie, and as Dean can can uh, attest to, uh, especially with com- always with comedy, but especially with dark comedy, getting that tone uh, mm-hmm. absolutely right is not an easy task. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where if you let the air out of the balloon for an instant, there's no getting it back. Um, it's such a delicate tone to dark comedy, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and there's no recovering it. So so it really was a, a, a laborious process, not only in terms of editing, but then in terms of testing the film and re-editing. So um, it, it was a, it was a lengthy process. But I but I will say that we finished the film about a year before anybody uh, was willing to look at it. Right. Um, and and then. There was a presidential election. Oh yes, um, was there? So, so we were we we were thinking we would hit the ground running at the beginning of 2016, and uh, and nobody wanted to see the film. I mean, we were literally told uh, this kind of misogyny, uh, this kind of exploitation, th- this doesn't exist anymore. Right. Point point blank told that. Then there was a presidential election, and suddenly some people said. Could we take a look at that, or would we, or would we take another look at it? And finally, a film festival was willing to take a chance on it. And uh, and when I say take a chance on it, it's because um, film festivals operate for the most part no differently than the film business itself, which is the name of the game is consensus, and hmm. a, a, a dark comedy is all about proving divisive. And uh, you might get some people who love it, but you are going to get some people who really abhor it. Um, and, and if you don't have that kind of discomfort from watching it, you haven't done your job. That makes it very difficult to get it programmed into festivals because uh, the programming boards and committees on these, these festivals are trying to gain uh, a certain amount of consensus uh, with their colleagues. And uh, but so, like I said, uh, it, it was done and we were a little bit like, well, what the hell are we going to do? Yeah. And, and then Me Too happened. And suddenly, yes, we found ourselves 
uh, with a film that was made about a cultural event that had yet to take place when we made the movie. <laughs> wow. You know, that happens. That happens sometimes with artists uh, jumping into the zeitgeist, mm. unbeknownst. You know, I think of the X-Files and all the conspiracy and UFO stuff that nobody had even heard of that suddenly Chris Carter was creating years before actually everybody was really into it. So it has that same kind of feel with this movie, actually. Uh, and it's, of course, the themes are, are ones that had interested me for quite some time um, as both a filmmaker and as a, a, a violence prevention specialist here in California. Mm -hmm. um, but it but it really was interesting after. So I've been living with these uh, these ideas, these themes, these issues, these topics for quite some time. Uh, I've been researching them, educating about them, telling stories uh, relating to them. But we made this movie, Me Too happens, and suddenly we actually had written in one review that our actor Ari Gross was clearly playing Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> wow. <laughs> which, 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 of course, was not something that was on our radar at no. that point. But as Dean and I have talked about, I can't actually say... Ari wasn't playing Harvey Weinstein because uh, he clearly was embodying an archetype uh, that, um, I don't know, that resonated with him mm -hmm. for this character. And he had met Harvey before he had worked with Harvey. So he was calling upon something very real. And right. maybe, maybe it was a, a, certainly Harvey Weinstein or someone of that ilk. Uh, but we never had that conversation. That's for sure. That's that's amazing. I mean, it's uh, th I don't remember who said it, but it's uh, there's a saying something to the nature of um, it's very easy to predict the future. You just don't necessarily know when that future is going to occur. <laughs> right. That's oh, yeah. Somebody somebody told us that at a screening where we uh, at the screening where we were able to announce that we finally had distribution for the film. It also happened to be the same screening where I got engaged to uh, yes. our, our co-producer, Lily Holloman. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, and I said that to all uh, my friends and all her relatives that said, boy, you guys were together for almost 11 years. What took so long? I said, well, it's very easy to predict the future. You just, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what you did yeah and by the way the ensemble is fantastic in this movie everybody's acting is on point uh and it's um it's it's fantastic to watch um because i love watching acting i know it sounds you know obviously people like watching movies but uh you know there's a certain amount of <laughs> spectacle involved with a lot of films and then there are you know uh more performance direct or not directed but performance driven uh, films, which I feel this is pretty performance driven. Uh, uh, pretty, pretty. It's it's somewhat. Uh, what a diminutive word. Um, but it's uh, well, like one of my favorite films is in fact a dark comedy with great acting, at least in my estimation. And it's uh, it's called Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Yes. And uh, you see that as a comedy? Uh, yeah. Well, it's a dark comedy. I mean, I think it's very yeah, sure. funny, but I recognize that it's also very you know it's disturbing and it it's there's a lot not said in it. <laughs> um, but so much more uh, said and well, implied. I, hmm. I, I love. I always loved ensemble uh, pieces, 
Um, and especially in the seventies films like uh, Nashville directed by Robert Altman. Uh-huh. And, um, and, and one of the reasons that I love it is because, uh, I, you know, I've always loved supporting actors. I've loved supporting players. And as I find myself telling my acting students, what, why do we call them supporting? What is it that they're supporting? And to me, it's that, uh, these supporting players are supporting our belief in the world that we're watching. We will follow a story. We will watch a movie, a TV show, a play. If the lead characters are attractive, interesting, funny, etc. But we will only believe that world. If we believe the people around them who inhabit that world. And uh, so it's a real fun challenge to say, okay, let's make that ensemble be the focus and therefore, though, there uh, again, like with the tone, mm-hmm. uh, you, you can't have any weak spot. You can't have any spot that blows up your belief in the world or the whole house of cards comes tumbling down. So that's a, a real challenge. And then the fun of it is that it really felt like when we were filming it, like I was getting to make seven different short films uh, <laughs> and each and every few days it would be a different lead actor. Yeah, well, that's true. It's it. The pressure was off for me on the acting part, uh, specifically because everyone else was so great. So when you get ensemble, there's also a more relaxed feel to it that you're the you're not getting a sore back by having to carry this bloody thing. You can just sort of kick back a little bit, and then no. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. But I do think, I do think that I think that one that, that you you might just be lazy. But two, um, oh. acting is is supposed to be a team sport, right? I mean, I don't like the athletics metaphor unless I can use it to my advantage. Um, but it is, but it is supposed to be a team sport, and uh, it is crazy how often that gets forgotten, especially where acting for the camera is concerned. But when you're part of this ensemble and it truly, uh, you can't ignore the fact that it's about just hitting the ball back and forth. Right. Um, hmm. it, it, it does. It, it, it does remove that sense of pressure if you're doing it right. And it becomes just a sense of fun and, and exploration. That's true. And I, it was a joy to do. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> well, it was it was great because you know Jamie Kaler, who plays uh, the detective in the film, uh-huh. he and I would take so much joy in any moments on screen where Dean gets angry, uh, and it was awesome because I mean it, it, nothing delighted us more than that. So we would keep asking him to do take after take after take, and. And he would get so frustrated because he didn't know what was wrong with the earlier takes and there wasn't anything wrong with them. We just really, they were making us laugh so much. And so he would just get angrier and angrier and angrier just for us, the funnier it got. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thanks so much guys. <laughs> it was actually pretty fun to, to, to see because uh, he, he seemed such a stern presence in this film um, that, that I was, I was pretty afraid of him in the movie. I mean, I understood, you know, it's a character, but uh there was this, um, uh, gosh, I don't know how else to describe it. You know, sternness, I guess, was a good. It was a very, uh, you know, this, this. Uh, I don't want to get into too many spoilers, uh, ter- uh, spoiler territory-wise, as far as the story, because so much of this, 
I feel works by not knowing anything about how it's going to unfold. So most of my notes are about just little details that are not, um, uh, and my, by the way, I don't mean notes like what I would have done, but notes like, uh, things, little, little things I noticed that I liked and wanted to ask about. Well, I, I think we could at least, I think we could at least probably set it up for everybody by just saying that the basic premise is seven guys, most of whom uh, knew each other in college, mm-hmm. uh, where they played a uh, a game of romantic conquest, mm-hmm. uh, decide decades later to have a reunion game, uh, but now having gone on to achieve things in their lives and for whatever reason, several of them desiring to blow up their lives, decide, won't it be fun if we add uh, some big financial stakes to this game? Mm-hmm. So... For and also bring in a couple new players, and uh, so these seven guys set out to play this game of high stakes romantic conquest, uh, which leads to several uh, crimes along the way. Um, oh yes, and uh, and Dean in it plays the one guy who really does not want to play the game and gets extorted into playing. Right, right. That was. That was uh, okay. Good. So that those are things like that are okay to mention that the the reluctance and whatnot. That yes, exactly. And it's funny because aside from that last bit, uh, it's what I've been hearing about the about the plot from you know listening to Chill Pack and um, reading about it, and uh, I was really delighted to see how it played out. Um, and I I really like the interaction between the characters and the little lines that would come in. Uh, there was one I, I wrote down something called. Uh, couple of things called notable quotables <laughs> and uh and this is just me but little things like um during one of the meet- meetings one uh character remarked to the other one human centipede it later <laughs> oh my goodness i'm glad you liked that because uh that was an ad lib or an improv you know an improv bit that jamie kaler threw in that I liked wow. so much, and I had him then do it uh, in several different takes, and uh, and no one else has ever uh, responded. To it. <laughs> no one else has ever responded to it, huh. and I I I worked so hard to actually fit that in. <laughs> um, wow, I mean, it's such a specific so. reference too that, like, you know, it's it's a. Uh, it's a. I like that it's. It's basically like a. Uh, it's a reference to something else, kind of taken to the extreme, and one really kind of has to know what it means in order to, to appreciate the, uh, <laughs> the just the casualness. This guy has such disdain for. For I mean, are these his friends? Even the people he claims to be his friends, because they because yeah. they tend to treat each other just terribly, and and not even like in a. Um, it, it doesn't even seem to be a fun rivalry. So it makes you wonder why. <laughs> why they're friends some of these people which is great um boy boy you yeah i mean if if it tyson it must be very painful for you to watch uh, political <laughs> figures in washington uh, behave with each other right i, I mean you know it, it's it's mostly just clips of cnn and msnbc these days that's um that's that's what i can handle yeah. i like morning joe i like rachel maddow uh ari melber because he quotes rap lyrics but i mean but, but I mean, we, we, we do go from a time seemingly where friends are ratting on each other uh, <laughs> at oh. the drop of a hat. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, wow, yeah. So the parallels, yeah. absolutely. 
Um, I, I did have a question about certain things. Now, I, I, my understanding is often during um, filmmaking that there are little uh, visual things put in. I don't mean like an effect, but I mean like just just set dressing, generally speaking. And um, I wanted to ask about something that was a little detail that. So there's a conversation that takes place in what looks like um, the hallway outside a meeting place that they're at. And there's a poster for, I'm guessing, a musical group, Alana and These Fine Gentlemen. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, that's funny. Okay. And your question is, uh, why is that poster there? Uh, or who? Yeah, guys, it, uh, it, what's, the, um, what's the connection? Because I might have missed it okay. if, if I didn't look through the soundtrack. So and I apologize. So go ahead. <laughs> well, there's two connections. One is that the Alana in question, it is a band. It is actually a band, Alana and these fine gentlemen, mm-hmm. uh, a very good band, a uh, house band uh, at, a, at a couple different clubs here in Los Angeles. But uh, the Alana of Alana and these fine gentlemen, she turns up in the film uh, playing a coroner who will interact with the character who's standing by her poster um, Ah. earlier in the film. And if you see the theatrical cut of the film, which you have not, you would have to go to a theater to see it. Uh, You will will hear an Alana and these fine gentlemen song. That's it. There are at least two theaters in Arcata, California, where I reside that might uh, run it if it were to come through. Uh, I have no say over that. They, will, they might run uh, like blazes the first chance they get oh, God, when the film comes knocking. Um, you know, if, if we could dive this back just to the conversation about friends and sure. what you were saying, I, I've been really struck by that because uh, nobody's ever brought this up before. Hmm. But it is, part, I think, part and parcel with this topic of toxic masculinity. Hmm. I was always struck when I would do violence prevention work and often I would uh, be asked to go to lockdown facilities where young men had already perpetrated some act of violence that was now going to alter the trajectory of their lives, never mind the lives of the people uh, who were on the receiving end of this violence, but their lives themselves, they were now realizing would be irrevocably altered. And one of the things that would get said to me a lot was I wish that at least one of my friends had pulled me aside and said, you're on a dangerous path. Don't do this. Um, But instead, somehow friendship at some point stopped being uh, raising the bar and holding the people that we like the most accountable, Mm -hmm. um, holding our feet, each other's feet to the fire, that stopped being what friendship meant. And instead, it became this bizarre idea of, oh, you have you have your friends back no matter what they do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and yet I would argue that to have your friends back would mean you don't let them do something that might ruin their life. Right. And, That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, a great but, judgment. Exactly. But now if you call someone or hold someone accountable for the potential uh, destructive nature of their actions or their attitudes, you're somehow not being a friend. And we need to rewrite that. 
Um, because friends absolutely should hold each other accountable. I think that's one of the big things, again, we don't want to get too much into politics, but it's one of the things about political discourse that disappoints me the most is uh, that we we seem to give a pass uh, to the behavior of those who agree with us politically, as opposed to, I agree with this person, so therefore I am going to hold them more accountable for them, their actions, uh, not only because I want to agree with the message, but because I want them to be a credible messenger. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a, hmm, that isn't a metaphor for our current state of uh, politics, then I don't know what is. But uh, so I do think that that's really important. I think uh, this, this kind of tribal uh, element that is so fervent in our culture right now was something that we're um, looking at and deconstructing in in the lady killers uh, by showing how uh, obviously boys will be boys, but how unfortunately men will be boys now too. Right. Absolutely. Um, uh, (laughs) There's another detail uh, that I I enjoyed um, that is, there's a couple of elements in the film that are driven by this aspect of the plot, but I like the, uh, there's a time, the poster, the uh, Rob's ha ha house. And the show is called (laughs) horrified in quotes, then says relive your childhood. It wasn't funny then, but it might be funny now, which in itself is an interesting idea. Uh, And then in all caps, public humiliation begins at 8 PM. Now, this sounds like something that actually probably happens in theater communities or what have you, where there's some kind of exercise or display, or was this uh, something taken to the nth degree? Because it doesn't seem that far out of the realm of, of things that have happened before. It is not out of the realm. Uh, in fact, it's the reason, it's the raison d'etre for one of our actors being in the film, uh, Sean Parker, oh. who plays the periodontist, uh, who's so great in mm. the film. Oh, yes. Um, uh, he uh, first came to my attention uh, in an acting class, actually taught by David Dean Botrell, who also plays a, a, a rather delicious small role in the film. But um, uh, but I, I saw him in this acting class, and I wanted to learn more about him. And the only thing that I could find was an NPR piece on a stage show called Mortified. And it was about uh, people uh, coming to this stage show and reading old diaries, old love letters, old poems from their formative years that embarrass them or leave them feeling shame. And through the process of taking ownership on them and sharing them on stage, they get to rewrite in some way their own feelings of their formative years. And uh, it's a very therapeutic, uh, it seems, show, very inspirational, very healing. I was able to attend one that Sean was performing, and he was the focus of this NPR piece on it. Um, so I told our, our producing partner, Bert Bulos, mm-hmm. uh, who also acts in the film, about this show. And, uh, and I asked him... Uh, you know, can I write something for this guy? He's never done any acting, but he has it in him. And I see him as this part. Can I write a part for him? And Bert said, not only can you write a part for him, but you need to write this into the movie because what a great way to get chicks. 
<laughs> wow. There, and, yeah. uh, and so Jeez. suddenly, not only do I put it in the film, but I, I twist it in a horrible, horrible way so that it's used as just, again, a, a sexual conquest tool. And I give that tool to Bert's character. Yeah, there is no shortage of bad behavior uh, and things that I would never imagine transgressing upon another human being that I claim to be friends with. <laughs> That is, uh, their relationship is, uh, is, uh, it makes you wonder, well, there's definitely a power dynamic at play. Um, if I m- might say Bert Bulos's character doesn't actually really seem to like anybody. Um, oh. uh, and like from the moment I met, especially the second time I watched it, I looked at him, uh, first time he appears on screen, I thought this guy is not to be trusted. There is something going on that is just <laughs> darkness. <laughs> darkness behind those eyes there's something like ugly and dark there <laughs> that is that is just it's, waiting it's so funny because he i think uh maybe it's starting to dawn on him how reprehensible his character is but <laughs> wow. he he thought it was you know to borrow a phrase from uh, the chinatown sequel the two jakes i think bert bert believed his character to be the leper with the most fingers right. um like the least bad guy in it. And he thought, yeah, he's kind of cool. He just, he knows what he wants and he's desperate and he's going after it. And, you know, he's a cool guy. And, uh, and but you're so right. In the end of the film, there, uh, when, when the playing cards are revealed that uh, do a couple of things, mm-hmm. they reveal a, a color scheme mm-hmm. uh, that was present throughout the movie that could allow you to know who's what, who's doing what to whom all the time. Right. It right. also shows where the characters end up, um, and most of them end up uh, somewhere in hell. Yeah. And his character ends up in the lowest, in the innermost circle of the lowest rung of hell, um, because he truly has no backbone at all. He truly betrays everyone and everything he claims to care about. There is no fidelity with him whatsoever. Um, and uh, and so it felt very appropriate to me to start the film with him, right? It, it begins with him seemingly waking up, uh, a la Shakespeare's The Tempest, oh. wondering how did I find myself in the center of this storm? And there's an opening shot of this train going into this tunnel, and there's two tracks that the tunnel could take, yes. and one is more lit and one is more dark. And a case could really be made that this is the dream he's he's waking up to, and that in that moment, he has a choice to make. Uh, and once he makes this choice, then everything is irrevocably moving forward. Absolutely. That's, uh, I just thought of, thought of the, uh, the, trains, uh, the train tracks in my head. I do remember seeing the tunnels and think, oh, that's interesting. I, I'm sure I, I noticed it on a subconscious level, but much more so the second time when I was really looking for details that I might have missed. Uh, I do you like know, something. Hmm. Uh, something happens to him in the film in a uh, in a steam bath. Mm-hmm. Uh, we won't say what, but something happens in the steam bath. And if you're paying close attention, uh, amidst the sound of the steam bath, uh, you can hear a train on its tracks arriving. 
Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to have to go back and have a look at that. That's neat. This episode of Suckatash is sponsored in part by TrumpPoetry.com, a chronological ode to a fake muse. Enjoy a rhyming spin on the news of the day every day, as well as over 500 archived daily verses thoroughly covering the White House, America, and the world with a sticky caramel coating that's impossible to remove. That's TrumpPoetry.com. Everything you need to know in rhyming couplets trumppoetry.com yes trumppoetry.com this episode selections are from the last day of 2018 and the first day of 2019 so first up from december 31st 2018 number 752 this whiplash tour de force of world events a wearied year of many and much and yet so sadly lacking in the touch that points us to a way that might make sense. So wide, so deep the space that lies between, and now that chasm globally connected can rock to dust the best that we've erected, and only then lament what might have been. A year at closing time, a cycle ending, a fixed point source of infinite potential, in some small way a choice that's reverential, absorb and dare to radiate the mending. If it no longer serves, ring out the old. Weigh what you feel beyond what you are told. And from January 1st, 2019, number 751. How sad our prez chose not to go. Ring the new in at Mar-a-Lago. May he sit on the john, tweeting out until dawn, to reruns of Guy Lombardo. All right, let's get back into the interview with Phil Learness and Dean Hagland of Chillback Hollywood Hour. There's a, there seems to be some, uh, I don't want to say hidden, but definitely there's religious uh, imagery, uh, overtones, um, ideas. The choice of the words, like I, I think words are... The choice of words, I think, is really important. It's one of the reasons why I've been uh, was studying Esperanto last year is because there's a specific word for everything, um, and that you know you don't use one word when you mean to say another. You right. Know, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. So, like, well, for example, like in language, in greeting, in greetings, when you say "How are you doing?" instead of "Hello," but people think that "How are you doing?" is "Hello." Some people think it is when actually "How are you doing?" is a question. And you might get an answer. And if you're just expecting them to say hello back, it's kind of on you because you could have just said hello because that is – but then again, hello has its own thing. My point is there's a line in there toward the end uh, where it's, it's – uh, why would – it's not why would you do this. It's what would possess you to play a game like this. <laughs> like I thought, mm. I thought that was an important word choice because of the um, references to Dante, because of the – there is a uh, number of the beast that shows up in the film uh, as well. There's little things. I can I can take all these uh, potential spoilers and references out if you at your request, but I, I did notice them. <laughs> well, is anything spoiled? I don't think so. I don't know. I just uh, maybe maybe I'm spoiling the chance for people to discover these things well, on their first own. Of all, or <laughs> first of all, I've got I've got to I've got to strongly disagree with you on one point. Okay, um, certainly. We all know that the reason you're studying Esperanto is so that you can enjoy that William Shatner feature film uh, in Esperanto in its original language. Ah. Um, that's why you're doing it. Uh, I, 
Uh, exactly. Is that it, or was it White Comanche? I can never remember. It's called uh, Incubus, yeah. <laughs> but you, you can't go wrong with either, really. Um, I, there's a, there's an interesting thing that Tucker Smallwood, the great Tucker Smallwood, who plays uh, the bartender, the proprietor of the club where uh, much of our film's uh, key scenes are set, he um, he said something in an interview that when he first read through the script, it occurred to him that his character uh, might not be the devil, mm. but was certainly a minion of evil, mm. um, nudging humans along. They still have free will. They're going to do what they're going to do, but nudging them in the direction of their worst inclination. And what I loved about him saying that in this interview was we had never discussed it, but uh, in the earliest drafts of the script, uh, his character truly was the devil. Oh. And the and the end of the film did take place in hell. Um, wow. So 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 that. Yeah. So there there is that running through. I think the film what Tucker says in that interview that I think is most important is that the film plays out on a multiple levels of reality. And you don't have to uh, appreciate the any, uh, you know, or all of them to be able to appreciate the film. You can just uh, kind of plug in to a particular level of reality and the film, I think, will work. Um, but it's but it's hard to watch it without being aware uh, that, yes, there are there are other levels at play here. OK. Right. Um, I like the line. Uh, can we dock points from both of them? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was my line. Yeah, it was great. That's a, that's, it, was, it was really funny, yeah. <laughs> especially in the moment there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know. I don't even know if that was written anymore. It's one of those things where you don't uh, – we had a lot of fun, uh, uh, you know, improvising on this uh, film. Oh. And and it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because – well, two things. One, um, we, we we came upon a motif that I really like and I look forward to using again, which is you start the f- scene as scripted and then you encourage as much play as possible, as much improvisation as, as possible. And then right before you let go of the scene, you go back to the scene as scripted. And what you'll often find is that everything you discovered through playing and through ad-libbing and through improvisation, all the intention of that is still in the scene, but now it's being expressed through the scripted lines. Mm -hmm. So I really liked that. That was a lot of fun um, and really rewarding. But the other thing that was sort of stunning to me was that classically trained improvisational performer, Dean Haglund actually was one of the performers who ad-libbed, the least. That's what I was about to say. I don't remember improvising that much. Your scripted uh, lines were very specific and uh, kind of major to the plot. So if I started improvising and riffing, I think the movie would have taken a whole another 12 hours of footage. Uh, that would have been bad. Well, that would have been fine. That would have just added another year to the post-production. Um, but uh, but I would have loved it. Um, no, I, I, you're on to something, though, which is, and I maybe it didn't occur to me, but uh, your character is so key to, uh, as you say, the plot. 
you're, it's not that you're servicing the plot, no. but, but, but your character is so key to everything that will unfold that if you had played around in any way that altered the course, um, it, it, it could have proved quite problematic. Um, and, and also your character probably, I I think it's fair to say might be the character who has the clearest idea of who he is and where he's at in his life. Oh, I'd say that Hmm. comes across. Yeah. That's, And, and, and therefore your, your character is the one least likely to just fuck around and say things that he doesn't mean. Right? He doesn't, yeah. he doesn't I, want to play. By the way, I just dropped an F-bomb on the new Succotash, Tyson. Is that okay? Oh, oh it's fine. Yeah, I tend to leave those in on, on Succotash. It's um, it's antisocial show where I tend to use creative bleeps. Uh, Succotash is oh. fine. Um, although I have put a uh, creative bleep or two in once in a while just to be funny or to try to be – or to, or to give people the uh, – hmm? Sorry? That would be a spot to put one in. Oh uh, well, yeah, but, but I, 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 I don't know. It depends. Do, would you? Do you care if I leave it in? <laughs> no, no, of course not. On our show, Chill Pack Hollywood Hour, Tyson. If if our guests don't swear, we we they end up on the cutting room floor. Oh, <laughs> well, I'll be sure and curse up a storm uh, if it ever comes to fruition. Um. Yeah, it's just yeah. I don't know. It's a whole it's a whole thing with editing. Well, you know how editing <laughs> when uh, when one edits uh, sound or one edits their own podcast or two of them. You know, there's just some choices that need to be made occasionally. And uh, I made the choice somewhere around episode twenty uh, six five. I don't know some somewhere in the middle of our three or four episode interview arc with comedian Ed Wallach. That I just decided to start bleeping the episodes, but I didn't want to just have beeps, so I uh, decided to make distinct sounding bleeps for each word, so you'd still basically know what the word is. I mean, we're not fooling anybody. It's just, yeah. but that way I can put the non-explicit status in the uh, in the thing. Oh my goodness! So yeah, I love it. And then you're starting, and then you're starting a whole thing where a, a particular sound can mean a certain thing. Absolutely, right? Yeah, it just it's which has thing. just as dirty connotations. Oh yeah, and it's it's it's. Uh, I mean, it's 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 easier, really, just to cut out the parts. But sometimes it's there's a long rant, and he, he my 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 uh, co-host goes off on something, and it's like, no, I, I want to keep this, so I'll just take the time to cover up all the s words and f words that come out when somebody gets gets a good head of steam going and is really, you know, uh, uh, what's the word? I guess exuberant about something. <laughs> hmm. I had a friend who was a wonderful performer, uh, sadly now dead completely. Mm. But he uh, he used to love uh, using titles of movies as his curses. Oh, uh, so and he did it really well. I mean, it was never it always worked. Damn him! This was how good he was at it. But for example, he might come in during a heat wave and say, "Snakes on a plane! It's hot out there." <laughs> Um, you know, and like Jumanji was what he would drop instead of an F bomb. And, uh, it was really good. I think Esperanto, quite frankly, it sounds like a curse. It does. uh, Oddly enough, it means to learn Esperanto. Who's teaching that nowadays? Oh, it's not. I walked in, I walked in with a whole lot of Esperanto in my hands and I said, look what I almost stepped in. (laughs) 
Look what I... <laughs> oh, yeah. I, that's a good one. The old joke. Uh, it's, in answer to your question, it's, uh, it's supposed to be as easy... It's supposed to be the easiest uh, language in the world to, to learn. In fact, the claim is, is that a native Chinese-only speaker and a native English-only speaker can reach the same level uh, of, of Esperanto knowledge uh, or working... Uh, hmm. Functioning, working, speaking language of it. See how well I yeah. do with English. Proficiency. Proficiency. Thank you. They they can supposedly reach the same level of proficiency in uh, four months, and and uh, I used the. There's an app called Duolingo. Oh yeah. That makes uh, uh, for those of uh, who haven't heard of Duolingo, it makes learning a new language into kind of a, a series of little games and tests that like little micro games. Um, so before too long, you're reading it certainly i can read it i can read a lot of it um i can't always i, I kind of stopped for a while um but I, I could probably pick it up again um it's uh there's really simple um rules to learn in in it uh, all the vowels and consonants always sound exactly the same they never change uh the inflection of words is always uh the stresses on the second to last syllable that never changes uh, nouns and, uh, or sorry, adverbs, adverbs, verbs, which one? Adjectives always end in a certain letter. I can't remember what it is now. I used to, when I was actually actively doing this a lot more, um, around this time last year, uh, I had all, a lot of this memorized, but sadly, wow. yes. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's Duolingo is teaching you Esperanto mm-hmm. for the purpose of watching a William Shatner movie. Oh sure, yeah. Well, I mean, I, thankfully there are subtitles on that William Shatner movie, but um, <laughs> okay. I'll tell you, it's one thing to hear you know a bunch of sentences and go, "Oh, I'm understanding this. I'm understanding this," and then to uh, listen to a Esperanto only podcast, of which there are a couple, um, where you hear very, very um, you know uh, well established and elderly voices speaking fluent Esperanto and realizing, "Oh yeah, no, this is uh, this is something that requires a lot of practice and a lot of <laughs> hearing." Um, hearing how people pronounce words can change, even though the vowels and consonants are all, are all standardized. I am shocked by this. I'm shocked by this movement, honestly, because when I was a kid growing up in the 1970s here in California, Mm -hmm. Esperanto, there was, there was like a a hot second Mm. where we were supposed to study Esperanto because this was going to be the universal language. Yes. Um, and and that lasted just about as long as our study of the metric system, mm-hmm. and uh, because we were going to convert to the metric system here in the states, mm-hmm. and uh, and it had been my understanding up until this Succotash chat that both of those things, Esperanto and the metric system, were dead. Oh no. No, there's a flourishing Esperanto. Uh, there's a, pro- uh, uh, a culture. I don't yeah, you can't you can't speak to the metric system, but there is a flourishing uh, culture of Esperanto. Yeah, it's true. I mean, my measuring cups still have both uh, metric and I don't know what the other one is. Standard? What, what do we call our own? Standard. Uh, we call it standard, go. buddy. We call it standard. We call it American. Love it or leave it. <laughs> I lived in Australia for four years. It's known as Imperial. Imperial. That's right. Uh, we're bu- we're building a giant, beautiful wall around the metric system. <laughs> the uh, metric system is very much like sounding like Esperanto. It's easy to figure out. Uh, Never mind. You know, it's interesting. Esperantists were uh, early Esperantists were among the people that were um, 
uh, I don't know if captured is the right word, but they were definitely um, put in concentration camps alongside of um, all the other people they were putting in. Uh, they they thought uh, apparently Hitler believed that the that Esperanto was a um, a language that would be was a part of the the quote unquote Jewish conspiracy and uh, rounded up members of the founder Eric Zamenhof's uh, family, put them all in concentration camps, but they were able to continue teaching Esperanto to other um, prisoners. By mm-hmm. by by saying that they were actually teaching uh, Italian to to yeah. to each other because it actually kind of part, parts of it sound pretty similar to it. It actually sounds a lot like Latin in spots, which is probably no uh, no accident. It's, right. So um, just when uh, just when I started worrying that our whole discussion of the lady killers was making the film not sound fun or funny enough for people to check out. Uh-huh. We went ahead and we dropped a protocols of the elders of Zion mm. on them. Wow. Yes. We dropped the H bomb as it were also. Yeah. So, uh, so that's good. So in comparison to Hitler locking up linguists in concentration camps, mm-hmm. um, the lady killers is slightly less dark than that. I mean, what, right. what conversation about toxic masculinity would be complete without mentioning Hitler? Oh my God! Sorry about that. Uh, I would have I would have said in all conversations about toxic masculinity, playing Hitler is the trump card. But now that seems like a political statement. So I don't. I don't want to. Nice one. Um, you know, yes. this is how difficult it is for Tyson to edit these conversations, Dean. Wow. Um, uh, it. it well, just as evidence of how difficult it is for him to to edit this, we actually recorded this conversation before the Me Too movement started. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so those of you hearing it for the first time, we predicted the future. <laughs> we are dogged by cunning foresight. Um, we want to, uh, you know, at some point get to turn the table and ask you a couple questions about the new suck. I keep calling it the new succotash. Um <laughs> But hmm. uh, uh, is, is there more? Should we shamelessly plug our movie some more? You, you can as much as you like. I, I'm I'm game to uh, to do, oh, to do, do either. You have, do you have questions for us? Do you have questions for us about this runaway freight train comedic success that's changing the way people view movies? Uh, let's see. Well, where can it be found? Actually, is one I'd really like to know because uh, uh, because I think people need to know if they aren't interested in it by now and good lord they know they should be um where can you watch it where can the average person who who uh, has not been given a, a secret link find the movie to watch it <laughs> first of all only exceptional people should watch the uh, <laughs> just by virtue actually just by virtue of watching an independent comedy i think you are uh, exceptional um uh people can find the best way to find a portal through which uh, you can learn how you can see it at a screening or how you can watch it right now on demand across a wide variety of cable and internet platforms or how you can watch it on DVD. Mm-hmm. The easiest way to do this uh, is to go to the film's website, theladykillersmovie.com. All right. Theladykillersmovie.com. And, uh, and, and the, the, there's information about the movie, obviously, and about the people in it and the people who made it. But for the most part, it is a perfect portal 
to uh, finding a way to watch the movie. Yes, and people definitely should see it. It's, uh, it, it is. Um, I have a feeling it's going to be uh, uh, like a, a like conversion therapy for some people. To um, there, uh, maybe not. Maybe conversion therapy isn't the right term. But there's a especially not with the context it's taken on. But there is. I what what am I head change? What am I thinking of? There's some kind of a. It's going to be a wake up call for some people. There are going to be people who. Uh, process it as a personal attack which uh if they do they perhaps should um and and others that uh might not understand it but should watch it anyway because there's going to be moments in their continued uh, existence otherwise known as the future where they um where they make realizations about it and make connections that they perhaps didn't the first time they saw it and maybe understand a little bit more about what they perhaps have been doing wrong and uh I think that's a good thing. So Yeah, I actually think the film might be hardest on those people who are already on board with the themes of it. I think the film is actually maybe the hardest view for those people, um, believe it or not, because there's uh, maybe not so much to enjoy except a feeling of, well, they're right. Um, right. <laughs> uh, but you know it is it is an interesting watch it's it's it, the first time i saw it with an audience i uh, hell why lie mm. every time i see it with an audience i am so uncomfortable this movie makes me uncomfortable and i made it um and and i ask myself why why did you why do you do this to yourself why did you make a movie that would make you uncomfortable and uh, but i do fundamentally believe that there is great hope for us as a species and that hope rests in our willingness to be unsettled um as long as we are willing to do that there is always hope for us um but uh I told this story once to Mark Hershon, your predecessor on Psychotash, who wrote about this in a Huffington Post piece. He wrote about the film when we were struggling to get any eyeballs on it at festivals. And um, it was that at one of our test screenings I alluded to earlier, three couples actually broke up after seeing the movie because of their reactions to the movie. Oh, wow. And that was at one screening. And and Mark thought, well, there's your marketing campaign. You 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 know, you put uh, you position it as as the ultimate modern date movie. Um, you know, see it with someone you're not quite certain about. <laughs> right. Then, you know, for sure afterwards where they stand. But it is it is interesting. Right. I mean, like yeah. what people. What people laugh at, what people uh, find uh, uncomfortable, what people laugh at, uh, does say a lot about uh, us as individuals, and it evolves over time. I I mean, I am often uh, the only person in a theater laughing at something, and then, especially if I get to see it on the festival circuit, and then by the time it comes out, then it's accepted, oh, this is funny. Um, but it, it can be really uncomfortable to know whether you're supposed to laugh at something. Mm. And with, with the lady killers, it was great. It was great fun. Even in those earliest test screenings to, uh, hear how everybody's kind of laughing at the beginning of the film. And then by the end of the first act, now it's only guys laughing. 
And by the middle of the film, it's only guys who aren't there with women who are laughing. Hmm. And then by the end of the second act, suddenly it's the women who are sitting up in their seats. And now they're the ones who are laughing. <laughs> so it, it's uh, it's really been fun to see how the movie plays, uh, you know, differently for people uh, throughout the course of its running time. Wow. I can, I can only imagine. I do love the... Uh being able to laugh at things and um i don't i don't typically uh laugh at i guess what am i trying to say it is it is really unpredictable what will make me laugh i'd say i i um i will smile and appreciate a lot of things i'm I'm really not a great audience for like stand-up comedy even though i've been uh, attending it a lot recently because there's a a pretty decent uh, stand-up comedy scene in uh in humble county oddly enough um perhaps not oddly um, but uh, usually it's moments in dark comedies that that and they usually have to surprise me in some way, and then I'll I'll actually emit a laugh. Most of the time I'm kind of softly <laughs> chuckling and appreciating uh, appreciating things. So a surprise usually makes me laugh, uh, which is I don't know what that's worth. With, um, it's usually the moments between the jokes when they're telling them. Um, the last time I had a, a strange or a unexpected inappropriate laughter. No, it was appropriate uh, in a. In a um, Black comedy was the movie Very Bad Things. Um, oh, yeah. There's a moment there where the situation that they are in goes immediately from bad to worse. And it's not even the initial oh, sh- oh, oh shit moment. It is it is an, an escalation of that afterwards. Uh, basically a shot where a controlled area of violence goes to spread out over the entire hotel room. For those of you who have seen it, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who don't, I'm not really spoiling anything, but when I saw the shot of the room that had gone from we've got the problem in one area of the room to now we've got the problem all over the room, I started laughing uncontrollably, and I was the only one in the theater laughing. And the person I was with turned to me and said, you're a sick fuck. You know that? <laughs> that's the only That's the only moment that I actually remember from that movie, believe it or not. Um, I, had, yeah, I, I, I You did. Did you? Yeah, I think I did. See, I, I we used that very much as a counter example, uh, uh, you know, as a as a as a warning case of what not to do when making this film. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, um, it, because we looked at okay, why does you know rarely do dark comedies land, and mm-hmm. um, and we were looking at the ones that failed uh, to hit their mark uh, as much as the ones that succeeded. Um, uh, you know, what can we learn from them? And with very bad things, um, it was the fact that it, it felt like to us when we were discussing it, mm-hmm. kind of a cynical vacation from acting for these recognizable uh, young actors. Um, that that they knew that they could do these horrible things and as actors, they would just seem more cool. Um, right. uh, and it was why it was really important to us in making the Lady Killers, especially when you know Ari Gross, who we talked about playing or not playing Harvey Weinstein in the film, mm-hmm. um, he he was not the original choice for it. That part was written for another actor, and uh, who ultimately was not available. And when he became unavailable, we got a whole bunch of quote-unquote names thrown at us. 
of name actors who wanted to do it. And I was really disturbed about that idea because I felt that if it was someone who was a name, we'd be letting the audience off the hook because they'd be going, oh, well, I really hate the character they're playing, but I love that guy so much. Hmm. Right. And uh, you need to be able to hate these people for it to really affect you. Um, otherwise, there's just a certain element that's winking at the audience. And I felt that Very Bad Things was a movie that winked at the audience throughout it. Sure. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I think in, in the case of Very Bad Things, it probably helped that movie to do that. But uh, th- there's a, this, this film that you have is grounded in a reality that's, that I think I feel, at least it felt very real to me. Um, and I hope that's what you were going for because it worked. <laughs> Yeah, which is which is again, uh, you know, no small trick because, as we said, it's playing out on different levels of reality. Mm. So, what do we mean by that? Um, because it's not the world we live in being depicted on screen, Mm-mm. and yet mm. somehow how these men are behaving feels all the more authentic because of it. It's a it's a really it's a really strange trick uh, that we that we were able to pull off. Right. It's uh, yeah. They've captured a group of characters at their most desperate and sad uh, points, and they just apparently seem to go through, <laughs> try to get through it by being more desperate and sad. <laughs> you know, yeah. They meet the thing with the thing. Yeah. They meet the thing with the thing. Which is the name of my which is the name of my new podcast? Meet the thing with the thing. Uh... Yeah. And it will be an entirely uh, Esperanto discussion of uh, dark comedy. <laughs> that, that sounds interesting. <laughs> All right, Tyson, do you have anything more for us or can we turn the tables on you? Oh, I, I, I think I'm good. Um, I, I think I went over the notes. I, I had, you know, it was just more things with details. I really liked, I didn't know why this was in here, but I figured it was, um, I'd ask, um, but I, but if you'd like to ask your, your questions, it's really just there's the Mark Twain quote in the uh, classroom that books are the liberated spirits of men. And uh, the again, with the spirit theme, I found myself after I was noticing little things, I, I began looking for everything and wondering if there was um, meaning in it. Uh, there's a little pink post-it on the computer that a character is using. It says chapters four through seven. And I was like, oh, is that a biblical thing? And then I realized it doesn't say what, what book of the Bible it would be. So perhaps not. But <laughs> But you know, perhaps I perhaps not, but but perhaps. But perhaps. I mean, uh, we 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 had this one great. Uh, uh, well, I don't want to single anybody out, but there but there was someone in particular on the art uh, team, on the production design team, who really got. Uh, I mean, they were being driven nuts by me and my color scheme mm-hmm. um, uh, at times because you know it's it's really tough it's really tough to work out colors that uh are used a lot uh in the manufacturing and the design of objects and architecture and interior design and it needed to match um and and to find me duplicates of things because there are indeed locations where the objects will stay the same, but the color of those objects will change from scene to scene. Hmm. So they were being driven nuts by me, but there was one member of the team in particular who really just a a switch got flipped and he loved it and he got (laughs) so into it. And then, uh, yeah, started reading into this kind of religious 
element or the spiritual element uh, of what was going on, these different levels of reality. And um, uh, and I gave him carte blanche. And so like the Mark Twain quote was him. And um, what was put on the post-it note was him. Hmm. Um, and I never found myself uh, ever saying, okay, you got to pull it back. I, I never, ever found that. So very cool. Yeah. So thank you for, uh, for talking about this with me. And um, I'm, thank I, you. I really uh, was delighted by this film. Um, I, I, I hope more people see it. I, uh, they invariably will, of course, but uh, you know, it's um, I am sorry. It sounded like I was interrupting something. No, Tyson, feel free to write a little blurb review of the film in the description of this episode of Succotash, and we'll quote that. We'll excerpt your blurb in our promotional materials. All right. I'll, uh, I'll uh, get to work crafting a blurb. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, no, no, do a capsule review. I'll, we'll excerpt your capsule review. But okay. uh, I, yeah, just, no, I, I, I just really wanted to say crafting a blurb. <laughs> and there you have it. The first Succotash the Comedy Soundcast Soundcast of the year in the can. Or indeed, out of the can and into your ear mouths and ear bellies. Okay, that's just horrifying. Sorry about that. I'd like to thank our guests, Phil Lairness and Dean Hagland of Chillpack Hollywood Hour again, for agreeing to spend time chatting with me about their film and, as you heard, other topics. Chillpack Hollywood Hour can be heard on Blog Talk Radio, Stitcher, and iTunes, and you can find the archive of Chillpack Hollywood Hour at www.chillpackhollywood.com. That is C-H-I-L-L-P-A-K-H-O-L-L-Y-W-O-O-D.com. The show can be reached on Twitter at Dean and Phil, that is capital D-E-A-N, capital A-N-D, capital P-H-I-L. Phil Lairness can be reached at Phil Lairness, that is at P-H-I-L-L-E-I-R-N-E-S-S. And Dean Hagland at D. Hagland, that is D-H-A-G-L-U-N-D. And remember, you can find the website of their 2017 film, The Lady Killers, three words, at theladykillersmovie.com. T-H-E-L-A-D-Y-K-I-L-L-E-R-S-M-O-V-I-E.com, where you can purchase the film on disc as well as be updated on theatrical screenings of The Lady Killers when those are announced. If you want to see it at home or on your device, there are many options, including iTunes, Google Play, Vudu, Microsoft Store, Amazon Prime Video, Flix Fling, Direct TV, Fandango Now, Verizon's Watch Fios service, YouTube, MCTV, and Steam. I'd also like to thank you, the listener, for spending time with us this episode and every episode you choose to listen to. You're nothing if not spoiled for choice of what to listen to, and I am nothing without you. Okay, that's a bit much. I shouldn't say I'm nothing, even when attempting to compliment you. It's unhealthy behavior, and I made a New Year's resolution to be healthier both physically and mentally, so we'll see how that goes. I hope your 2019 shapes up to be a delightful one, and I also hope that the film The Lady Killers becomes part of the larger conversation about how humans treat each other, so we'll see how that goes as well. Thank you again for listening, and if I could ask something only slightly more of you, it would be to tell other people about this program, as well as the programs featured within, for that is what we mean when we ask you to, please, pass the succotash. Succotash.
You've been listening to Suckatash Chat, the comedy soundcast soundcast with your host, Tyson Saner. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants and... Imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com, on iTunes, on Stitcher Smart Radio, on SoundCloud, on YouTube, on Donder, on Blitzen, on iHot Radio, and on... <laughs> the Laughable App. You can hear us streaming and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Email us at TysonSaner at SuckatashShow.com. Or call into the Suckatash hotline at our toll call number, 818-921-7212. That number again is 818-921-7212. You can also upload clips from your favorite comedy soundcasts directly to us by using our direct upload link at Hightail.com slash you slash Suckatash. Production of Suckatash is overseen by Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, hosted by Tyson Saner. Our executive producer is Mark Hershon. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the Suckatash. Goodbye. Goodbye.